and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt. I am here on our Sunday special with uh, Elias Axel Pedersen, and we have a, another guest with us today. Uh, Mikhail Masood is joining us. Um, Mikhail, did I pronounce that right? I, I, I am always very sensitive to that, but <laughs> he is a musician, a podcaster, and a teacher. Um, he's currently based in New York City. He splits his musical activities between uh, composing, conducting, and performing on the Aoud, a Middle Eastern string instrument popular in his native Lebanon. He is the co-artistic director and co-founder of um, Amalgama, a contemporary music ensemble dedicated to integrating fully notated music and free improvisation. Mikhail is a full-time teacher, a uh, music teacher at Harbor Charter School in East Harlem, as well as teaching online private lessons in composition, theory, and ear training. He is also the host of the Movers and Makers podcast, a podcast of interviews, conversations, and debates with people who make things, the, the, the creative universe out there. Welcome to the show. Uh, Mikhail, thank you so much for being with And If Love Remains. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. And hi, Elias. Hi. Good to see you. It's good to have you on. <laughs> Yep, it, thank you. It is wonderful. So, so tell us a little bit. I mean, obviously, we have a little bio of what you do now and what you're kind of about. But, but let, let's let's back up a little bit. Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? And and how did you get into this like crazy creative community that that you seem to find yourself in? Yeah, it's actually a very uh, convoluted story that doesn't start um, at all anywhere close to where it ends. I, I was born in Lebanon, and I. Um, grew up in Lebanon and France for most of my okay. like, first part of my life. Um, my family is is um, not music not musicians at all. Like there are no nobody in my family is even slightly artistic. Really? <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> and um, it's it's mostly like um, in college I was initially studying chemical engineering. Okay. And oh, for um, yeah, and after studying, I mean, I I used to live in in Beirut when I f did my French baccalaureate, like the very end of high school. And then I think I just wanted to um, try something new. And so I went to Quebec, um, which is where I met Elias. And I, so I went to McGill, um, where I studied chemical engineering initially, because I mean, the idea that I would study music was something that like, just made everybody laugh around me at the time. Yeah, like your whole, like um, your whole family, like, what are you, what are you talking about? This music thing is just isn't a, is not the right path. Yeah, Don't study it, you do it as a hobby. Yeah, right. I mean, in, in high school, I remember also, I, I, I was pretty good at chemistry, and I was good at math and physics. And so that's, that's kind of how I randomly picked chemical engineering. But I remember the, my, my um, chemistry teacher, who was someone who liked me a lot, because I mean, I was good in her class and everything. And one day she told me, I think you're gonna become a musician. Really? Like you look because you know, I just like keep working on my music all the time. She's like, you're always working on your music. It looks like you're just gonna end up being a musician or something. <laughs> and she meant it like a really bad thing, right? Like that's oh. that's like the worst thing that could happen to me. And I was like, well, yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping will happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she, but she was kind of bewildered. She's like, but you're so good at school. Um, and I was like, yeah, I guess. But yeah, so like when I first left, my, I love everything you know, about. Parents, can I just tell you, I love everything about that story. <laughs> that's awesome. That's <laughs> yeah and i remember like in the beginning i i really wanted to 
to study um, jazz. I mean, I was mm-hmm. a bass player. And growing up, I, I studied double bass, and I stu- and I mean, I played also like the classical double bass, but I I was really into into jazz bass, and that's what I wanted to study. But um, it was yeah, it was not it was not in the in the cards for me. My parents, especially my dad, were completely opposed to it. They had a they had a, they had like an idea of what what it meant to be a musician, which was so far from the mark. Right. And uh, and I remember like one night where it was before before I was supposed to leave by maybe like two weeks, three weeks before leaving. And I, you know, I, I, could, I couldn't argue with them because my, they just wouldn't listen to me very much, especially like my dad. And so I, I wrote them this very long letter where I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. You know, I was, I was, I wanted to go to Paris Conservatory. Okay. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. I, we've always been like, so you were in, lived in France. You were in Beirut at this time and Beirut, yeah. getting, getting ready yeah. to go to Paris. Okay. Okay. No, to getting ready to go to Montreal. Oh, go to, to go to McGill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I told him like I didn't want to do that. That was wrong for me. Oh. And I had another plan. I wanted to go to Paris Conservatory um, to study the bass, and I wanted to stay in like, kind of the Mediterranean area. <laughs> France is a place that just like I feel very comfortable in. I especially at the time. I mean, I was it was like what I really considered home. Home, yeah. Um, and I I just I really wanted to do that. You know, I didn't I didn't want to travel to this like North America, like far far away from anything I'd ever known, and. And so I came up with this whole plan, this whole idea of what I had to do. And then they just shot it down. So it was, I remember there's like very violent conversation that night. Yeah. And then it kind of like, they kind of like really crushed me. And, and then after that, I felt like I just tried to just, you know, I, I don't know what I was thinking actually, but I just did it. And, and yeah, so I moved to Canada and it was hard at the time. Like I was in a long distance change, relationship yeah. with my, my high school girlfriend and we were like really serious. So, but she was like, you know, seven hours away, right. uh, time difference. And it was 2003. So, I mean, at the time, like communication was hard. Like I had to buy these cards to call yes. her. And, oh yeah. The, the MCI <laughs> cards. <laughs> yeah. It was like $5 right. for like 55 minutes. Yeah. Oh uh, man. And, uh, I remember those. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. And so like, what was your, um, I, I, I am curious, like, if you don't mind delving a little deeper, like into mm-hmm. like that, the conversation you had with your parents, uh, the, the, they got pretty heated. Was that like, um, were they just like, Hey, basically, you know, you're my son and this is, we've got the path laid out for you. And you're just like, I just, not, I'm just not feeling it, dad. I mean, like, 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 um, yeah. No, I mean, my dad thought that like being a musician meant to be like, you know, into drugs and mm. to, to basically live like out of a basement and just completely oh, give up okay. on the idea of, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. And I was like, well, that's not what it means to be a musician. Like, you know, and then, so I had to convince him of what it meant, like what music was about and what it meant to, to become a professional musician, as well as convince him that that, that was also right for me. So that was like a, I had just two, you know, two things to accomplish in this conversation. And Anybody who ever met my dad, you know, like he, he's not a good listener. Yeah. You know? Most dads aren't. Being the dad, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. and, 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 and like growing up, like what, what spurred on that passion? What, I mean, you said you played the bass. Did you have some influences or, or like what, or did, would just, did you, it, would, it was just something did that you listen was just, to a lot or, you know, have mentors yeah. or what? That's a good question. I mean, you know, I, it was very, it was very, instinctive i don't know i remember i just really liked music since i was a kid yeah um but the music i listened to was i mean all over the map right like 
I grew up, of course, listening to a lot of Arabic music and, you know, you'd kind of absorb it passively. But I also, I mean, I liked, I liked a lot of rap. I liked um, Aerosmith and, um, you know, any, I like anything you want, you name it. Like I was obsessed with Michael Jackson at some point. Yeah. I, when I was 12, I really liked the Backstreet Boys. Okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, like really, I, I listened to anything I could find. But as I was in, like, you know, as I became like, I think 15, 14, 15, I joined, like I started being in bands, um, more like more seriously. And then we, I was a bass player, but I became, I was a bass player by accident. Like I was a guitarist and then we needed a bass player. Right, so that's like, usually how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I really liked it. I mean, the bass was just like, I mean, I was obsessed with Jacob Pastorius. Oh yeah. And I used to like, you know, learn his solos and like, and then Marcus Miller and a lot of different like, you know, electric bass players. And then I met this American guy who is Jack Gregg. And, um, and at the time I mean, my English was, was, was pretty horrible, but he was this like real American guy from, I don't know where in the South. And he was like white hair and lived in Paris before and then moved to Beirut. And that's where I met him okay. initially. Um, and he played, he played the double bass. And so then I was like, this is great. I mean, I remember there was this place called the blue note and we used to, I used to play there sometimes. I know I would love to go and listen to other people play. And he was playing there one night. He was just like this very old guy when I met him who just sat in this corner and just looked like, like there was like a cloud around his head and he just lived in his own world and he's just like walking. And then everybody was, you know, playing the solos. He's just smiling and right. and playing. And it, I was like, I really want to like get to know that guy. And then I started studying with him. Um, and so then I got really into, you know, jazz double bass. And so I got a double bass. And at the time I used to borrow my, my parents, uh, little beetle, you know, like the car. Mm-hmm. And and so I would I mean it would just fit me and the bass. I would like lower <laughs> yeah. all the seats and put it and 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 then I would you know go and, and one day I remember I told him like I don't understand these classical players because I played piano like I had some piano lessons when I was a kid yeah and then I kept playing by myself you know we had a piano at home and I would play like Haydn Bach stuff like that um, and I liked listening I I loved like Beethoven cello sonatas and I would play by myself but I didn't really get classical players much it was like what do they do like orchestra players like did they, they just like play what's on a page so i was like kind of you know having this like uh very hubris filled rant one day to him about like how orchestra players are just like trained monkeys <laughs> and he was like he's like have you have you been to like a rehearsal i was like no it's like come because he played in the lebanese symphony oh right on so he's like come to a rehearsal so i i went and then i listened i was like that's really nice the energy is really cool and he was like have you ever listened to stravinsky and i remember like no i never listened to stravinsky and i was like you know, by then I was like, what, 17 or, you know? Yeah. And so he was like, listen to this stuff. He gave me a bunch of albums. And then I, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, and then I started, that's, and then he knew this Romanian guy, Mihai Onete, who was like my first classical double bass teacher. So then he put me in touch with him and I t- took lessons with him for a year. And he was such a good teacher, that guy, that um, I, be- I was hooked. Like, you know, it's like, that's what it takes. It takes like a really good teacher. Yeah. Too. And I think that's one of one of those days where I was like, one day I want to be a teacher like this. Ah. Like this is, you know, to like really, he made me feel like anything was possible. And, and it was such a like, like exhilarating feeling, you know what I mean? To, I mean, especially the double bass, like nowadays having like gone around and like studied with other people and everything, I feel very disillusioned by the bass on some level, <laughs> you know, because like, it's really hard to play in tune. And yeah, it's like, my, my, you know, it's my brother instrument. plays the, the double bass and uh, he's, he studied over it at, at Dixie College up in, in Utah and he, or Dixie 
I forget what it's called now. It's now a four year university, but they, but he, uh, um, yeah, and, and it's it's pretty for a lot of reasons. <laughs> the double bass is a difficult instrument to to manage, um, whether that's yeah. just getting it to a rehearsal or or uh, you know or actually playing that. I mean, the thing is a beast. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Tone and intonation and carrying power. It's it's tough. There's a lot there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And many techniques, and you know, how do you hold your bow? Is it French or German style, or yeah. are you doing you know, slap bass for jazz? Uh, so many styles to play in. It's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's a lot no, more. but I feel like it's very forgiving, more forgiving for jazz. Yeah, but yeah. when you play like you know, cla- straight up classical tonal music, it can it can be really hard to play in tune. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's it's not a, not nothing to say with the performer. It's just the instrument. You know, it's like very yeah. Yeah, even the great greatest performer, you know, classical bassists out there, I, I've heard them. And of course, when I was younger, I, I didn't really know much. And, and uh, I heard some I was like, oh, that's pretty phenomenal what you can do on the instrument. But now I listen. And even the greatest, they have a hard time really staying in tune if they're if they're playing a concerto. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, <laughs> when you press a string down, you're already changing the pitch slightly because there's so far to go and you're increasing the tension. I, that's, oh yeah. Crazy. yeah, yeah. The string, yeah. I mean, also it depends on the approach of the teacher. Like when I was in Montreal, so like you know, a year later or so, actually less. I, when I got there, I was like, I need a new teacher. Uh-huh. So I found I found someone, and he was you know a player at the uh, the MSO Montreal Symphony, and he just had like a totally different approach. I mean, he was a good player, you know, he was a pretty good teacher too, but his approach was like, well, you know, the bass. We're like the carpet that the you know the the instrument whatever the music walks on like the red carpet right and so we have a certain role and we fulfill that role that's like how it is you know and I remember thinking like yeah I mean I understand that like pragmatically you know that that's how it works but like to just start there you know and be like that's those are the, I mean you know I remember feeling like that's just so. That's just so uninspiring, right? Not, ex- <laughs> not exactly what 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 your oh, I forget his name, but the the white haired guy in, in Beirut was uh, yeah, Jack Rick. <laughs> teaching. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When did you move to Montreal, by the way? Because I'm trying to think of when when we overlapped. So I was I- there from 2003, um, and that's when I started doing my engineering degree until 2010. So because I I did two, so I did engineering, and so the long story short is I I switched. Mm. Um, did you did you finish 20, your did you get your bachelor's in engineering? No, that's the funny part. I, I um, so I did I did through two and a half years. Super good student. I was like on honor roll or whatever you call it. Like you know, I had like second highest GPA in the program. I worked in the lab. I, you know, I did everything I was expected to do. And in my mind, it was like, well, when I graduate, I'm gonna join the music program. Like that's what my parents said. Like that was a deal. Ah, right? uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay, do, so that's the that's the way my <laughs> the bargain you made. <laughs> right. The way literally the way that my mom put it was like, you, you know, we're gonna do right by you, and we're gonna make you study something that will allow you to have a life. After that, you can ruin it however you want. But we'll have done our part. You, know? you can ruin, yeah. That's fabulous. That's right. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna do my. I mean, you know, I was diligent, and I can't believe I did it. But like, I really studied hard. It's hard. It's difficult. Yeah. You know, engineering. I would, you know, even if you have like a knack for it, like it still takes a lot of work. You know. Yeah. Time. And yeah. Uh, and, and and you know, and you, you have to like late nights, and there's a lot of projects. And I got into it, but you know, as I was nearing the end of the degree. Um, I was working in the lab, 
and um, like, you know, kind of like, a, you know, after school, whatever, like it, it was like a special pro, a special project. And they just hired me to work in the lab. And then one of the people who worked, like we worked with this Finnish company and they were like, hey, you know, when you're done, if we can give you a job and then you, you can, we can get, you know, fund you to get a master, a master's, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. But in my head, I'm like, no, man, I'm, I'm going down the street to the music school after this. But so I told my parents, like jokingly one time, I was like, do you, you know, yeah, they told me this. My parents were like, no, you have to do this. This is great. Like, this is such a good opportunity for you and so on. And I was like, man, you know, I can just see it. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. They're just going to push me into that too. And next thing you know, I did like my, lived my whole life for somebody else. Right. And so then without telling them, I, for my last, last semester in engineering school, I didn't enroll in a single class. I just enrolled only in music classes that I was allowed to do. And uh, so like things like ear training and theory, history, stuff that I was allowed to do as a non-major. So I enrolled and took only those classes in the last semester, which means that like by the end of the year, I would be kicked out of the program because you're not allowed to not, not enroll in a single engineering class. Right. And as a, and as a foreigner, you know, my visa is all like about being a student, right? The minute you're no longer a student and you're no longer enrolled, you have to go home. And so, yeah, so I applied, like I applied. That was a good bargaining chip. But like when I think about it, I just like get sweats, you know, I'm like, yeah. what did I do? Because I didn't have a backup plan. Like I didn't have another school that I applied to. I didn't, like what would happen if you, I didn't get in? Man, you, you know? burned your bridge. Yeah, you burned your ships. Yeah. You're like, I am I in. Crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, wow. and, and so yeah, I had met this this person. I don't know, Elias, if you've ever met Alexandra Fall, but she's a Bulgarian composer who, at the time, was doing her doctoral doctoral degree at I don't McGill. Think I met her. Yeah, yeah. I, I got and to she, I got to uh, Montreal in two thousand seven at the end. So we I don't know okay, how so we, we met, overlapped. but we overlapped a couple years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Might, yeah, no, I might have I, met I, her. Uh, she was she was pretty like active in 2003 to 2007 i think after that she graduated and she was kind of like just in town but she taught me um for like i don't know i want to say six months or seven months before i joined the program and she was like such a good teacher in in you know seven months she would give me these lessons that would just last like late into the night you know and uh and she taught me so much, you know, from orchestration and like pretty much like until today, I still like learn, you know, when I was in my doctorate, I would learn things. I was like, yeah, Alexandra told me about this too. And I, <laughs> she, I just, I learned so much from her and it was like the best, the best, um, like the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of like studying composition. And so then I feel, I made a portfolio, turned it in and then luckily they accepted me. <laughs> And, but then I told my parents about it and, oh, wow. Like we didn't talk for a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, cause they were like, you what? And then we didn't talk. And then it was, it was a rough, it was a rough year. Yeah. So you applied for a, a, then the bachelor's program to finish off a BM or a BA in music? BM. Yeah. Bachelor music in in composition and with piano. Yeah. So I added them because by then I was practicing piano like crazy. Like after I got to Montreal, I got really involved, um, in, in the music program, I had most of my friends were like music students. Um, and I, you know, I, I figured out ways to get into the practice rooms and I was learning that I was, by then I was, I was fully a pianist. My bass got stolen. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Someone broke into my apartment oh, and stole only my bass. Oh. 
Man. But it was not worth anything. It was like a hundred dollar vase, or I don't know, maybe <laughs> maybe it was more. But like it was, it was not an expensive vase, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, I was like, maybe this is a sign. So I just like committed to piano, and I lived right behind the music building. So like every morning, I woke up, you could hear the trumpets doing yeah. those like horrible exercises. <laughs> yeah, over yeah. And over again. I, I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I would wake up at like, you know, seven o'clock hearing the trumpets. I'd be like, hey, gotta go. And I would go practice before going to engineering class. And so by the time I joined, I was pretty good at piano. Um, but it was definitely, I mean, I learned piano like what, my late teens, early 20s, like seriously. And even though now I'm an old player, you know, but I, I play the piano a lot. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you could probably call me a pianist, like just as much. And, and do you find when you, cause I know you do, you do compose quite a bit. Like, do you find yourself fi uh, working from the piano as like a, a bass point still or, or, or it just Sometimes. depends. It depends on the project. Yeah. Like um, nowadays I, I spend a lot of time writing songs um, and I work a lot with kids mm -hmm. where we compose songs on the spot. Um, and for that, of course, like at the piano, it, it's really helpful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I like doing that kind of like pop music, uh, those kinds of things. And for that, like I, I grab a guitar or the piano. Right. But when I compose a certain other project, I, I like to work, you know, I like to work on paper too. I like to work using computers. It's, you just have to, I think you have to adjust to the, the project. Yeah. And luckily I've spent so many years in schools that like I've gotten the chance to learn how to be proficient at like all these different ways. Which um, is important. So definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I want to get into that too, but I have, but we, I feel like we have to kind of put a button on, on this journey a little bit as far as, 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 um, when, first of all, when you did finally talk to your parents again, <laughs> how did that go? And, and like, have they, have they, uh, I assume, I hope they've come to terms with what, what, with what you do and, and, and your life decisions and, and things are, you know, uh, yeah. Well, things are going well too, I think for you. So that, that probably helps. Yeah. No, I mean, I think they're okay with it. Um, I think they still don't totally understand yeah. what any of it is. Um, like some of the comments they make to me sometimes and everything, I'm like, wow, you still don't totally have a, gr a good mental picture of how I spend my day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. But uh, I don't think many I don't people do. I, I, when it comes to like the, like a musician, maybe like an actor is kind of like this nebulous thing of, you know, anytime you're in the arts, it's, it's like, you know, it's almost like everything, all the work you do is either cause you're so quote talented, which is a whole other subject we tend to talk about, right, right here, right, right, right. you know? And so it just <laughs> happens magically. Um, you know, and, and so we just, you know, like, like you say, we just spend our days, you know, smoking pot or, you know, just like it's, and it's just <laughs> not what, it, what it's like at all. Yeah. I, I was going to yeah, actually ask, and if we can get into your sort of, um, yeah, how you lay, lay out a day or a week, depending on your project and, and what you work on. I, I think at least with composition, people, this gets back to what we were talking about before we got on of how you see yourself and how others see you uh, and define you. Let's say uh, we, we have a composer and we just think, oh, well, they're just talented or they're inspired and they just write down their inspiration and, you know, in a matter <laughs> of moments, I guess, or an hour. And then, oh, and then they have this amazing piece. I don't think people understand the the trial and tribulations and just the experimentation that goes into writing something and talking with somebody about what they see as a vision if, if you're doing a commission. Uh, so, you know, take us through maybe 
a project that you do, or maybe a project you've done recently that you want to share. Um, and how do you, mm -hmm. what steps do you take to, to get to that completed, you know, final project? Yeah. So, I mean, from back in those days to today, a lot has changed as far as like, um, the way I do things. And I think some of it is just, I think I'm a, I'm kind of like a seasonal creature. Like I go through phases and, and it's not because I wouldn't call it like an evolution or a progress or anything. It's just more like I just go through different phases. And so nowadays I, I like to work a lot with, um, kind of spur of the moments, like, you know, one of the biggest things that, that bugs composers or like, you know, one of the things they have to decide for themselves is how do you want to, what, what material are you using and how do you want to relate to it? Like some people, they like to imagine that what they come up with is something that, you know, they've labored on and perfected and thought about for a, a really long time. And then it becomes like this, you know, really thoroughly um, polished result. Right. And other people, they, they think about it more like it's like a long-term progress. For me, I feel like it's it's a language, you know, and sometimes it's not even just a language that, that's like my language. It's more like, a, you know, everybody has their own idioms and their own ways of saying things. And when it comes to deciding on specific things, sometimes I, I really, I feel like it doesn't matter to me anymore as much as, as it did before. I, I'd rather more like it's about the situation that gets us in a place that, for example, if say I'm writing a piece for Elias, I, I think about Elias as being part of the equation nowadays way more than I would have a long time ago, right. where it was more about like me seeking, you know, what do I want to say and wh what kind of things do I want to write for the piano? But nowadays, I'd be much more interested in asking Elias, like, okay, what kind of things do you like to play? What are things that you're thinking about nowadays? And um, I might even ask him to supply, like play something for me. Or like, if, I'm, if I give you a certain prompt and I'll say, can you play play me something like, for example, like a groove, for example, that you would call like confident, mm. a confident groove. Okay. I literally just did that with somebody. And, um, and so, you know, he can play around, send me recordings. I won't necessarily use them as is, but it'll get me, I, mean, I might, you know? Right. In which case, what I like about it, it becomes like, I call it like pluralizing authorship, where it's like, it's no longer just my piece, but it's like our piece. You know what I mean? And, yeah. um, it and so I like doing that with people. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we started the, the group called Amalgama. It's, yeah. it's not just about like trying to find ways to improvise in the middle of, you know, notated music, but to be able to find ways to have more than one source of materials when it comes to like organizing something. Yeah. Tom, you know? I was going to ask about that. Cause it's so interesting. Cause, cause, um, as a composer, oftentimes, you know, one might think of, of the composer as, um, almost like the control freak, like this is how it's, you know, they'll even write cadenza. It's like, oh, everything is, mm -hmm. is as it's supposed to be. And, and, you know, especially with kind of your, um, more contemporary background, kind of a, a jazz background. It sounds like, um, it, you have more of a free flowing, like how does, how does that work combining the, the notated music with the improvisation? Like, what does that feel like? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely like, I feel like the picture of what it looks like is a, is something that I'm constantly like pixelating. I don't know if that makes sense. Like at the beginning, it's like kind of blurry and I think I get it. But then one day you like realize it can get way crisper. Right. And then you're like, whoa, I think I get it now. And then like time passes and it happens again. Um, but so in the beginning, I just thought it was like something that everybody should do. 
I mean, I still kind of believe that every musician should improvise to some extent. Like, you know, not everybody should do it on stage. I mean, some people don't want to, and, and that's totally fine. But I think for yourself at home, you know, um, I always encourage people to just try to play something, even if you don't like how it sounds, but it'll, you know, it'll give you an appreciation for certain sounds and how they work together mm-hmm. and what you like. And um, when it comes to um, being able to integrate that into a composition, so, you know, and there's like, um, there are a lot, there, there's a pretty big repertoire out there of pieces that explore, for example, you know, you give someone directions and you say, okay, we're going to play like long notes and right. uh, we're going to try to avoid att- uh, playing things at the same time. And then, I don't know, you can imagine like a form, you know, and then we'll see what happens. And then we go, right? I mean, that's that's fine. And I, I like those pieces and they're, I mean, what I described is very anecdotal, but there's tons of very specialized you know, Kind things. of aleatoric stuff. Well, is I, that I, what you're, yeah. I had a, um, I remember when I was in high school, we, we, as it was a, um, state, uh, state choir thing. And, and we, we sang a piece, uh, Bach, uh, uh, come sweet death. And, and at the end of it, we did this whole thing where everybody sang the last part of the song, you know, at any speed that they wanted to, as slow, as fast as they wanted to. And, and it turned into a very cool, and I think that's been done before. It's, I mean, I don't think it's anything new, but it is, it was an interesting experience. And, and actually listening to the recording of that still is kind of creepy and eerie to listen to, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but I, so I, yeah, stuff like that is, is, is quite interesting, but, but even that is, is almost so individualistic. It's, it's the sound itself becomes part of the whole, but, but to, when you're working with musicians where you're trying to kind of find your place in a composition and you're trying to like work through a conversation musically, it, that, that could must be a really interesting and at times very satisfying experience. Right. But I mean, for me, like those examples are just like one extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah. You know, the other extreme being like fully notated music, right? Where you just have to play everything as accurately as possible. But I, I'm interested in finding things in the middle where, I mean, you know, it can take lots of forms. But for example, um, writing, uh, there's a piece I wrote a couple of years ago called, um, yeah, I think because last year didn't happen, right? So one year ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's called it's called Jerk. And um, and it's, it's um, I wrote it for Amalgama and we played it like a couple of times. Um, and it was, um, the, the note, the notes are unspecified, you know, the exact sounds that you choose to play, but the rhythms and the contours and the dynamics were specified. And so you're reading the score and you, you have a lot of information there and, um, and it's composed, right? It's for, it was for seven instruments, I think, or six, I can't remember. Um, and then basically like it's composed, there's a form, there's a certain shape that is, uh, recognizable, even if you alter the the choices of notes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I even had other things like I use uh, circles, you know, the, the kind of thing that you draw above a uh, flute note. So it can be either empty, which means like a sort of air sound. Yeah. Or full, which means like a full, full uh, pitch or in the middle. Right. But I use it to mean more like the kinds of, the kinds of sound timbral quality that people can supply. Ah. And then when you're supposed to change chords and when you're not, so um, there's still a lot of freedom for the performance, but it's not the kind of thing that you can just improvise like freely on the spot. And, you know, so there's no aleatoric aspect to it. It's something that like performers are expected to spend time with. And then the rehearsals were pretty involved. Like people would like talk about the score 
and then read the full score together and be like, oh, I see. Okay. And then we try to do it. So by the time we perform it, 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 you know, it would vary like 20% from time to time, but they, they had settled into a certain, you know, 80% that's always going to be kind of there. That's their take on the piece. Right. Um, and so that, that's what I like because it it involves everybody, not just me. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder, and and I don't know if this is uh, possible or, or a copyright thing, but you know, on this podcast, we can certainly um, play examples of music. I don't know if you'd have a little clip or a snippet of that. Oh, yeah. Um, just so yeah, people can, can get an idea of what it sounds like. I mean, hearing you describe it is really cool. And theoretically, it's like, okay, I could kind of, you know, but what what does that even sound like? You know? Yeah, so. no, I would love to. I mean, we could play a, you can play a little bit of it. It's a pretty short piece, too. Um, and um yeah, there's another extreme, another type of, of uh, doing this that I've tried, which is um, more. So that's a whole other phase, but we can we can t- talk about this if you want. It's like a whole other topic. Okay. That um, that involves more Arabic music and um, not just Arabic music, but like you know the kind of music that we listen to. Yeah. On a regular sure. basis. Kind um, of. For me, it was like. Go ahead. I'm sorry. For me, it was somewhere between like jazz, uh, pop music, you know, that we listen to on the radio. Um, but also, you know, Arabic music, like the sort of maqam, which is like a, a you know, the modal approach yeah. to, to making music. And so I wrote a piece, um, it's called, uh, it's a quintet, I just call it quintet. And um, it was, uh, I, because I, don't, I mean, I don't like titles. I like that performers supply titles based on what they think, mm. you know. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's something I tried. It doesn't work always because people always forget about the title. Piece is over, everybody's like, yay, and they go home. And it's like, wait, guys. Pick a title. <laughs> what do you think this thing should be called? You know, and I think it's interesting to hear what pe- I mean, or audience members like. What would you call this, right? Oh, and, that's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and for that piece, um, it's it's very melodic, and um, I leave little brackety open spaces in the middle of the score. So, for example, let's say you're the first violin, and you're it's first string quartet and piano. So, let's say you're the first violin and you're playing. And all of a sudden, there are these two bars that are between square brackets, and they're empty. And and this is where, like, basically, you get to. I mean, what would you do? It's usually kind of transitional little solo things. Um, and so you get to decide. I mean, you can write it down if you don't want to have to improvise it every time, mm. or you can just play it freely. But I mean, you're encouraged to you know really check out what the others are doing, and then write something with it. You know. And for that, I mean, it's it's just so um, it's so pitched right it has modes you can sing it you yeah. can tell oh i think this one's in e here even though it's not like e major or e minor it's kind of like a just like a more right modal there's a there's like a a a, a, yeah. a root of some sort right are the other so, instruments notated during that bracketed section yeah. then oh okay. right cool. and so like different instruments take take turn uh take turns doing this and then and then you know you know that was the first time i did that i mean in a in a fully composed piece and I didn't, I didn't push it too far, you know, at that time. But I, w- I was very happy with that piece, and I think uh, it also it puts a lot of pressure though on the performers that sometimes they don't like, which is like, what are you going to play? Because I mean, it's, it's the question of like, okay, I can play anything I want, <laughs> but is that really some? Is that really a thing? Like, <laughs> there are definitely things that you could play that would sound bad, right? right? And like, it's not just because you can do anything. You, I mean, it's kind of like free speech, right? Just because you have it doesn't mean you can say anything. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. um, I mean, you might say anything, but a lot of people might think that that's not necessarily the best thing to say or, you know, right. or whatever. 
And I think sometimes that puts a lot. But sometimes those kind of things need to be said, and sometimes those things need to be played. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, that's true. There's a here's a and and I mean, we I was gonna say we've kind of danced around it, and that's not really true. We've actually been speaking directly to to what I wanted to ask you or, or talk about, mm-hmm. and that is the relationship between the composer and the musician, and even the audience. Like uh, that is to me um, such a, an interesting thing, and and how you maybe not necessarily blur the lines, but, but certainly like change the roles, um, that, that people expect and, and, um, how, and I guess my question is more like, first of all, um, I I love that you said that some people don't feel comfortable doing that, or some people don't feel like, um, you know, that, that maybe it's an inhibition of some sort or, or, you know, they, they don't want, they don't want that part of their voice to be heard. Um, but the other side of it is like, how does that translate to maybe if we are doing a more, uh, traditional piece, like how does a musician having that experience of, um, being part of the composition, um, or, or, or part of the creative process, you know, does that help them as far as, as, as playing maybe a, a Mozart or a Beethoven or something like that? How, what are your feelings on that? So you mean like, you know, having to do that, does that enhance other aspects of their exactly. performance yeah. life? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Right. I just like, just like being, I think just being trying to cook for yourself makes you appreciate, you know, good, good restaurants or, you know, good chef food more, even if you, you, you know, I don't know, that's one very simple way to put it. Yeah. But I think, I think to me anyway, and I try to emphasize that when I teach is that I think it's very important for people to try to break, break things down and try to put them back together and understand how they, how they were built and how, you know, the logic, I mean, there's no like black and white logic, right? It's music. It's subjective on, on, on a large level, but there's still a certain logic yeah. that goes into making certain things like voice leading and um, choices of notes. And, and I think the more we all try to, you know, get, stay curious and not just put a boundary on like where the questions that you have. So saying like, oh, I don't need to know why these notes, I just have to play them well, mm-hmm. right? To me, that's very problematic, like on a, on a human level, right? Like I, I try to push people to say like, no, no, try to ask why, you know? It might be pretty weird because you have to admit like you don't know. Right. And that's uncomfortable for most of us. But it is really cool to try to come to an answer. And maybe it'll be in 10 years, you'll suddenly be like, oh, I think I know why I played that this way, you know, or why these notes. And that keeps us, you know, really curious and really open-minded. And I think that's that's a really important quality. So I I actually, you know, I come from a very, I I guess you could say traditional, you know, on one of the ends of the spectrums that you talk about where everything is notated, you play everything that's there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I come from that sort of tradition in my musical upbringing, although I did sing. And when I was a kid, that was much freer and, and I was in choir and you kind of can harmonize if you want and whatever. But uh, at least my piano and, and violin, but mostly piano, it's been very rigorous, that sort of conservatory approach. So I have a very hard time improvising. I, I actually feel quite uncomfortable doing it. And I've had to a few times. And that those times I have, I've, I've really had to, uh, it's been humbling. Um, so with that said, and I, and I, I know it probably would help me in my musicianship if I, you know, studied that. Um, but 
I know you teach and, and you teach in New York. What kinds of things uh, are important in your own teaching that you can you can kind of elicit those responses or develop those those skill sets, I guess, for your students? What kind of things do you do you maybe do in your teaching to to help that? Yeah. So it depends on who I work with, I guess, because I my, my main gig is working with young children and I teach K to five right now. Um, and so with them, it's very particular, like in the, in the kind of training, like we do, I do a lot of ear training in class and get them to, you know, recognize intervals, recognize chords. And then we do a lot of free stuff. We sing, we have to, I encourage people to take solos. Um, they do a lot of freestyle, you know, they try to rap and add their own lyrics, but also just make up our own songs, you know? So there's always a certain degree of, um, spontaneity that I, try to nurture in them and they're so young that they're like naturally uninhibited you know so they don't really they don't even think about it as like oh i'm being free they just like they just are you know yeah that's but awesome. uh yeah but when working with like um you know college level students or like older i try to whether we're working on ear training or whether we're we're writing or songwriting or i try to keep people always like really aware of how things are put together. So for example, when I do, I have this ear training course that I developed once and it was like, it was a lot of work. It's, I call it like an ear training boot camp. but then I, I didn't realize that all the people who would want to do it are musicians <laughs> and nobody has any money, you know, to sign up for it. So then I started doing it for free, but I mean, there's only so many people you can reach. Right. So I, it was a whole course that basically I, I brought in as much variety of repertoire as I could. So it wasn't only, um, classical or not even like traditional classical, but not even only contemporary jazz, pop, Arabic music, um, and then try to adjust the approach, right? Whether it's like we're singing, um, I think it's really important for people to sing in solfege and to, yeah. you know, learn different approaches. So fixed, movable numbers, um, you know, so it doesn't have to be just one or the other. They're all tools that we can use. You know, like some people, they just say, well, I'm a movable guy. So <clears> it's like, okay, well, why would you just do movable though? I mean, that's very useful, but what if you're doing non-tonal music? Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's like, I think they're all tools and we should, we should strive to, you know, acquire as many of them, even if it takes longer. Um, but then, you know, try to, for example, there's this uh, Bach uh, prelude from the Well-Tempered Clavier. And it's really nice to play. And it's, you know, it's uh, the B minor one from book one. It's, it's very nice to play and everything. But when we do it, I always encourage people to sing all three parts in three parts. It's like, okay, we're going to sing the bass now. I and mean, now we're going to do it in movable. Now we're going to do it in fixed. Okay, now we're going to do it in numbers. And then now we're going to sing the middle part. And then now we're going to, you know what I mean? And switch yeah. back and forth and back and forth. And then try to understand. Because it, it, it triggers like things in your mind that you're not necessarily aware that you're thinking. Right about how it was made, you know? And it's not always just about saying, well, this is a voice exchange. Like, okay, this is very specific. But you might just have that, you know, feeling about about it, you know, that you can't explain and you'll be able to use it yourself. Yeah. Uh, about a suspension, you know, the feeling of tension of the suspension, how it resolves. Um, and having gone through a lot of, you know, theory classes in college and everything, I feel like those are less, were always less useful to me than just actually making music, you know? Mm -hmm. And... Um, just being like hands-on and just developing like a good instinct for something. But that said, it was always really useful to be able to then equate like something that I'm feeling. I think in French, it's called, uh, uh, in English, you always say percept, which is like a sort of a feeling about something that you can't necessarily articulate, okay. but it's like an intellectual thing. And it's suddenly realizing, oh, that's what that thing's called. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so like one big moment that this happened for me was like with uh, quarter tones, uh, quarter tones, which is like, a, we call them that in, in the West, but really, I mean, in, in the Arabic world, they call it half tones, right? Because right. when you say flat, you don't say half flat, you say flat. <laughs> and then so quarter flat should be half flat. Uh, but, you know, those notes that are in between the piano notes, basically. Yeah. Um, and they're very common, for example, in Arabic music and lots of other traditions. Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I was studying composition at McGill and then later, I was, I was always like aware of them, right? Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, you can use a C quarter sharp or whatever. And then I never realized that I actually really knew what these, what these sounded like um, on, a, on a very gut level from, you know, having grown up like in Lebanon, my family's Christian. So we'd go to church and then, you know, they're in the chants, they're all over. And then, in, of course, in Arabic music. And so, and I, I knew a lot of Arabic music, but I never really studied the theory growing up. Right. I just played it and I, you know, I heard it, but like never thought about it. And then one day I'm like, wait, I know what this is. This is this is like that thing, like Mokambayati, you know, or like a, you know, like when you sing a, a two that's like neutral second, they call it. So it's not flat. So if you're in A, it's not a B flat, and it's not a B, which is a normal like major second. Yeah. It's a B half flat or quarter flat, yeah, whatever you want to call yeah. it. And it's called a neutral second, and that's a very that's a very common in like a, a type of Mokamb called Bayati. Wow. And, um, and so I was like, oh, I know what that sounds like, you know? And it does. <laughs> and so being able to... Uh, I was just saying, it does, it, it does um, invoke quite a different feeling. Like it, it, is, it is when you hear stuff like that. For me, especially a, a fully Westerner who, you know, is not, doesn't have that gut level instinct um, for that sort of music. When you do hear it, like it, once, you, once, you, once I've heard it enough, like it, it changes your perception and it changes your, your, how you feel about the music. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very, it's a great feeling. Like it's an empowerment feeling. Right. And I think it, it can, I mean, that's why I encourage everybody to try to do that kind of thing. Because I think it's like, you know, when people say I'm a life, lifelong learner or you never stop learning, it's not a trope. I think it's true. It's just some people close themselves up to that, you know? Yeah. The discomfort of feeling like a beginner at something. It's interesting with you know your experience, like you were saying, and Mike too, that that uh, it was so natural for you to fill in those or feel those notes or hear those notes that are between the the traditional Western twelve tone uh, chromatic mm-hmm. scale. And you know, I, I grew up uh, in, in Jewish tradition. You know, we we sing, and maybe a minor song is not quite like a Western classical minor, but it's close enough. And so. I was trained in that uh, that method, and so when I got to college and started taking at the time, you know, called world musics, and was introduced to uh, North Indian classical and more Arabic uh, music and gamelan music, um, and I would hear these things, and to me, it was it just sounded out of tune. And until I started to listen a lot to that kind of music, and then I started to feel like, oh, this kind of is in tune with itself. I'm just so used to another system. Um, right. And another thing that opened my, my, my eyes up to that uh, and my ears was studying uh, older Western classical, like keyboard music from, from the Baroque era. And you realize that we didn't arrive at a, uh, the system we have for, for the uh, just intonation. Right, this equal-tempered thing. <laughs> in, yeah, equal-tempered. And, and there was mean intonation and Pythagorean tuning. And, and we didn't always have 12 notes to, this, to the octave. I think most... Yeah. Most cultures, if not all, I, I don't, maybe there are some outliers, have an octave equivalency. But within that octave, there are 
huge variations. And so, you know, in the North Indian classical music, I don't remember how many, but like 30 some notes to the scale in some regions and, and uh, 20 in another region. And we've got 12. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to put yourself in the mindset of these others. And I think composers, contemporary composers like yourself are starting to mix those, those um, fields. And so we hear quarter tones more often in Western classical music. And it's not just an experimentation like, oh, let's see how this crazy this sounds. It's like, oh, it has a, a sentiment to it or a certain feeling. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a big part of like for me landing back there, because um, like I was saying, it's all of it's like a journey, but you don't, it's not necessarily like you're necessarily moving towards a goal or you're progressing like in the sense that like, you know, progress, like we're improving or something. It's more like just a journey where you are where you are, you know, kind of thing. But one of the things that led me here was I think actually moving to the U S weirdly enough, like when I lived in Canada, um, I, I thought of myself as a composer and I was, I took it very seriously, even though I conducted a lot when I was up there. Um, I, I took very seriously my role as a composer, as in kind of like a researcher or, no, that's not true. I mean, it's more like a like a thinker, you know, like the way a, a novelist sits and writes these things and then shares Almost them. a philosopher. And yeah, yeah, like a philosopher. And I, I remember I would, you know, I would write these big pieces. I, I, got, I got very lucky when I was there that I, I got commissioned uh, to write for like the Wind Symphony Orchestra and the Contemporary Music Ensemble at McGill. And those were great opportunities, especially when you're getting started. And then I wrote for choir, like big, big choirs and and I was so interested in like packing as much detail as I could in like the intricate little parts, things that you may, maybe people wouldn't be able to hear the first time. But I was very interested in like packing the pieces with these little connections. And, you know, and then once I moved to the U.S., um, I had this like crazy cl clash of stuff. Um, and actually, like it, it was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do, way harder than like having to deal with my parents like you know, getting my way, which at the time felt like the biggest thing. But then once you grow up, like you start realizing your own struggles and how much I, I mean, I, you know, to be honest, like when I lived in Montreal, I think I, I was a different person on more than, you know, we all grow up, we're all different people when we grow up. But I think the way I presented myself, I was, you know, I was a French guy, right? Mm -hmm. Or like, I even like, you know, I had this like whole other personality that I really wanted to be. And I think I never realized how much I struggled with understanding who I am, right? Like it wasn't about how, what I told other people, it's about what I told myself and how I um, interacted with my Arab identity. Um, I just like basically shoved it, you know, it would come out in music. Sometimes I would write pieces that, you know, were, had something to do with the Arab world, but, and people liked those because they felt like, oh, look, it's interesting. It's like, you know, it's like a different spice. Right, it's exotic. So, and <laughs> Right. Yeah. But I mean, for me, it was like, kind of a something I felt ashamed of. That's why I, I didn't play the Oud for years, you know, after I left Lebanon. And I, you know, I really presented myself as like a French guy. And I, I think I, I just felt I had this like unfair problem, like this kind of knot in, my, in me that I didn't know how to, how to straighten. That was like, because I lived in France and I didn't have a strong sense of connection to my home country. Um, my family was kind of like one of those, you know, they traveled a lot and they did a lot of different things. So I didn't grow up with that strong sense of grounding that some of my college, uh, high school friends had. And I kind of envied, hmm. you know, that like the village and that you're like connected to somewhere right. you have roots. And for me, I was like, I don't know where my roots are. I just wish I did. I wish I had roots and they were somewhere in Southwestern France, you know, I wish I had roots and those, this is where they were. And so like, basically I almost like 
made it so, you know, I was a French guy. And I think once I moved to the U.S., it got even easier at first because everybody loved French people, you know, here. People are upset. In, in Quebec, it was a little bit like French, I mean, not <laughs> Quebecer. You know, so it was like, uh, you know, they liked me enough because it was like French, but I mean, as opposed to Anglophone, you know, but um, but still it was like other. And then when I was here, it was like, oh, French. And they loved it. So for years, I was just like very happy being a French guy with like a little like, you know, footnote of Lebanese stuff. Right. And then... Um, and then I was in I was in Boston first, and then I moved to Chicago for oh. my doctorate at Northwestern. And oh. so, you know, I, I was meeting a lot of people, and they were all in, in the U.S. Like everybody's just American. There was like a couple of foreigners here and there, but I very much like just became like immersed in American lifestyle. And and maybe that's something that a lot of people like don't necessarily realize. But being an Arab in the U.S. is is simultaneously like like really, I mean, it's a great thing, you know, you get to live in this place with all these great universities, but also it's like really um, trigger warnings, like constant, right? Like yeah. <laughs> having, having, you know, even if you're not political, even if you don't think about these things, you never thought about it, you will think about these things once you come here right. yeah. because of, you know, the way people treat and view Arab things, Muslim things, even as a non-Muslim, like, you know, you get, you get, um, you get lumped into right. it. And, yeah, and, I'm sure. and even yeah. then, like, I want to be lumped into it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wait, why are you talking about, like, oh, you're not Muslim? It's okay. So you're good. Wait, what do you mean? Am I good? Like, right, right. You know, most people I ever grew up friends with were Muslim. Like, so, so you get this sense of constant, like, inner turmoil of like, wait, what is the, the military? And why are we talking about politics? And like, are we going to talk about what happened in the Middle East? And it's a complicated story over there. Oh, it's yeah. not like, a, oh, we went there and then we, we tried to help them with their problem. It's like, it's no, it's too, not like that at all. <laughs> yeah. So it felt very troubling. And then being an Arab here, um, you know, became actually, even though it's harder, you know, in Quebec, there's like hundreds of thousands of Lebanese people in Montreal. Yeah. which I, I took for granted, you know, I could yeah, speak yeah. French there. I took for granted and I moved here. Suddenly I can't speak French. There are no Lebanese people anywhere. And if they are, they're like hidden just like me. And suddenly, um, you know, I started feeling this, like this angst, you know, of like, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm a fraud, you know? And then the best thing that happened was, um, so my now wife, then girlfriend moved to New York. She was also at Northwestern with me and she was like, I'm moving to Thank you. So she was moving to New York to go to MSM as a violinist. And so she's like, do you want to come with me? And I was just nearing my, the end of my degree. And, um, and it was kind of a crazy, again, a crazy time because once you graduate, you have to go home. Like, you know, you have to be a student. And once you're no longer a student, then you're done. Right. And so <laughs> bye-bye. Right. And so I was like, I, I was kind of thinking like, I don't know. So I, I took more time on my degree, work on my dissertation, moved with her here. And then I, I really, I mean, I was allowed only to work part-time. Um, so I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to work with, um, I mean, at the time, like I'm skipping a bunch of steps, but basically I started realizing more and more how, like, I'm not white, <laughs> you know, I, I look kind of white, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Again, it's really interesting to what people see me as, uh, you see me as white and not see me as white. I don't know. Yeah. I, I really wanted to be white my whole life. I wanted to be just another white guy. And then I realized that like, most white guys never saw me that that way, you know, like my, I had a, friend, a teacher and a composition teacher who told me like, sorry, like, I mean, he's like, cause you, you look, you look off, right. You're like Middle Eastern or something. I was like, so what is Middle Eastern? Right. <laughs> and at those moments wow. I felt like kind of, you know, as if like you're naked suddenly in front of somebody, you're like, wait, is that really how you see me? Like you don't see me as white. And then suddenly, I mean, I started feeling like, like I'm okay. Maybe I'm not white, but what does that mean to not be white? Like, 
and then depends on who you talk to. But suddenly I was in New York and there was this great opportunity to work with a, a nonprofit and they're called Reaching for the Arts. And basically um, their job is to send musicians um, into schools that don't have music programs. So, um, you know, daytime music programs. So you go after school at three o'clock and you work with people who want to do voice lessons or violin lessons, guitar lessons. Okay. I conducted the choir. So, and it was part-time. So I was so lucky that I, that's like one of the only jobs I was allowed to do, right? Because it, it's called OPT, which is like basically a special work permit that you get as a foreign student. And so it, you're, it has to be in your field, check. And it has to be part-time check right once you graduate you're allowed to do it full-time for one year and then and then you're done but since i hadn't graduated yet i was like this is all i'm, I'm allowed to do and then the students in the student body that I, you know the schools that i was placed in were all like black and brown right and even the white kids quote unquote white kids they were white like me kind of like yeah oh, i don't know off white or <laughs> you know <laughs> like so so suddenly i started realizing like their lives you know I, I became friends with a lot of parents and i made it like actually a lot of, a lot of parents became you know people i hung out with and you know I, get, I got really close to the community um and then strike like i struck my luck again one year later i graduated in june and then in july i get an email from the from the principal saying he wants to start a full-time music position no way just right when i got my work permit because by then my wife and i got married and then I got this like special work permit that you get before you get your green card. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the guy goes, do you want a job? And <laughs> and at first I was like, oh no, <laughs> are you kidding? Working with kids all day? No, thank you. But then I was like, wait, no, actually like, why not? Let's think about it. So I started and I worked there and I, it was the best thing I ever did. Not only because, I mean, it's a job, you know, like it's a full-time job with like health insurance, which is, I didn't think it would have. Right. Especially yeah, in like, the States. It's good. Soon, right. It's very difficult to, um, f like, it was always a source of anxiety. Like, how am I going to survive? What, you know, especially in the U.S., like, you know, am I ever going to have health insurance? And suddenly, like... Well, it's, everywhere it's that you've right. lived, that, it, well, that was not a problem. Lebanon, uh, France, you know, has that. Montreal, Quebec, they have their health insurance. Yeah. I, I, I felt very different. Too, yeah. 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 yeah, so the guy gives me a job, and I was like, okay... Um, so I, I felt very grateful and I started working with them and that, and that's when I think everything from before it all came together because, mm. you know, like the, the, the issue of, um, racial equality and representation and access, right. Access to, you know, high quality music education, access to instruments and access to the kind of education that like you feel represented in where you feel empowered. I mean, especially if you're like black and brown, right. you know black and brown communities are responsible for so much amazing stuff yep. that we all take for granted. And, you know, sometimes when I was like, when I learned it, I, I always heard it, you know, in such a way that it was like, there's, you know, there's African Americans and then there's American music. But like, if you take out African American music, you don't have an American, music. American music. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I was like, but, but like, we should credit African Americans way more, yeah. you know? And, uh, and when you work with those kids, I mean, I, I feel like it's like a big, a big thing for me to be able to teach it to them in a way that like that you know not only their parents would be like yeah that's that they identify with that well but in a way that makes them feel empowered that makes them feel like yeah you know that, that that they have a voice and they come from like very like strong traditions just as strong as you know european traditions and 
And then suddenly I, I started realizing that my tradition was also like that, you know, like New York, I'm very lucky. New York has a huge Arabic music scene and very like amazing musicians, like on all instruments. Um, it's a very lively culture with natives and non-native musicians who like want to learn about it. And so I started learning way more about it when I was here. And that's when I started reconnecting to all these, this theory. And now like I'm fully versed in it. I play, I play out again. You know, I perform. It's a whole other way of making music. But suddenly you realize, like, wait, why do we, are, why are we made to feel um, like, you know, like this is just a side note. Right. This is amazing stuff. Like Arabic music, just to say one, but like Persian music, Indian music, Japanese music, you know, Chinese music, all, all these other musics. Like it's a whole tradition, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And it's just as valid as as all the other traditions that we like to learn about you know whether it's folk traditions from eastern europe or like classical music from germany in the 19th century or you know all of europe like throughout like 1600s to i don't know 1900s you know we studied this it's such a huge body of work but just as valid is like african drumming uh, arabic like yeah. improvisation in maqam and there's so many like intricate details that I feel like it's part of that racial equality struggle. Like people should feel empowered, even though, I mean, nobody should feel too proud of something that people did for them before, (laughs) you know, like that goes for all of us, right? Absolutely. Like nobody should be like, we landed on the moon. No, we didn't. That was the previous generation. (laughs) Like, what did we do? You know? Uh, So like we should, you know, but still, I think that's how I, it approached, I approached teaching those kids and then it helped me. I don't know. You guys teach, you guys teach at all? Yes. Yes. Both, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like I learned so much more as a teacher than I ever did as a student. Yeah. And I feel like that's all when I time, f- yeah. was finally able to find the answers for all these questions for myself, like my identity and feeling comfortable with just being, you know, I mean, yeah, I love France and I'm, I'm when I speak to French people, they think I'm French and on some level I am, but I'm also Arab, you know, and that doesn't mean I identify with all Arab things. That doesn't mean I agree with Arab politics. I am actually here, you know. Right. <laughs> so, but there's not going a, back there but, anytime. But there's a whole, and I, and this is one of the things I just so love about art and music specifically is, and you mentioned it earlier when you talked about like different solfege systems and different thing, things, you know, modal systems, like all of these all of this music and this this deep deep repertoire that all these cultures have provide us with just another avenue of communication and and I'm a big believer that that true art um like in order for it to be that true sense. art it has to be honest like uh, of the most important thing for art is it's got to be honest for it to to re- be relatable to other people and and I think, you know, when you have these additional tools, whether that's microtonal stuff or whether that's, um, you know, or, or um, different, um, you know, uh, Arabic music or, or whatever. I mean, when we're able to, 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 to understand them in such a way that we can, it's just like learning another language. Like, like you can use a word, a French word, um, you know, Les Miserables, that, that really had, doesn't have a great uh, uh you know, uh, a- analog in English, but once you say it and once you understand it, it means you can say it much more precisely, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such, such a, that's what, one of the reasons why it's such an important part of, you know, the world and, and life. And it's not just a, a thing for fun or yeah, right. it's not it's not a side just a, issue. You know, for relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a deep part of like how we get to express ourselves and find solutions to, you know, and, and answers to like ways to 
alternate ways of living, alternate ways of thinking about. And, and not to get too religious, but I do think like that's why art in some ways or artists can be see as prophetic because they, they can literally like see the future in a way that, 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 that maybe they even, you know, uh, only subconsciously can understand. Like they're able to express something that, that people aren't able to say quite yet. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's I mean, cool as that far you're... as like those, huh? no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, as far as those, like, you know, those, struggles i mean they're very much in the spotlight today but when people say that they're in the spotlight today i think they just mean that like white people are paying attention to them you know but they which is a, a racial struggle right. you know a racial equality of visibility and um i think you know that that plays even a more crucial role because it's like a way for people to feel good about who they are that you know that doesn't have to go through the 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 lens of you know, I don't want to say Hollywood, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the way the visual, the, the visual lens of like, what do I look like? And right. do I fit in? And do I, but like with music and art and storytelling and, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a good, it's such a fundamental way to reach someone like at their core and be like, mm -hmm. you know, and I know it's problematic, like, cause it can lead to things like, you know, nationalism and chauvinism and, and, you know, it's a very slippery slope when you start feeling like, yeah, we're better than anybody. That's not what I'm saying. But honestly, everything <laughs> is like, like everything can be problematic if you take it to the extreme. Like, yeah. like you, like, you know, as, as my health teacher said, you could kill yourself eating applesauce, you know, like, um, you know, the, the, but, but it is important to have these conversations. And I think it's really important to, to, I think discuss it in a positive way. And I can't think of a more positive way to discuss these things than, using music as a medium for that yeah there was like a couple of pieces that i did once um that kind of come to mind where it shows like the potential um hairiness of it yeah <laughs> so there was one piece that i wrote once it was a it's called like you mean it and um it was a commission for the international contemporary ensemble at the time when i was in northwestern so it was like a really com a commission you know when they come to the school and they say okay you get to write for them I don't know what you call that, but like I wrote them a piece and it was actually, I think that was the first time I used an improv piece where I wrote, um, I wrote full passages, you know, like say four or five bars. And then I wrote an arrow and I said, okay, keep going. The, the groove goes on and the pianist takes a solo and then some, and this happened and this happens. And then like this other passage that's fully composed and but, and all oh, that's fine, right? I mean, it's it's hard. But then I did something kind of daring, which is I wrote attributes above. Huh. So, and and that really like shocked a lot of the, the performers who were all who were all white. Um, but I wrote um, like an Arab. So you're playing something, and I say like an Arab, <laughs> or you know, and others too, like lots of different ones. Right. But, um, and there were there guys were like, what do you mean like an Arab? Like, what do you mean play? I said, play like an Arab. <laughs> and they were like, but what? what okay, so I... Yeah, so what does that like, mean? Yeah. yeah. So how do you answer it? I mean, the thing <laughs> Go is, listen to an Arab play. <laughs> you know, go listen to that. Go listen to that culture. Listen to how it works. Yeah. But I mean, even then, like, what is an Arab? Like, that's a very difficult construct.
a Moroccan who doesn't necessarily identify as an Arab, not all of them do, you know, it's very different from an Iraqi. Yeah. It's very different from like, you know, we're, we're not a very uniform people. And, um, and so like that, there's, there's no right answer, right? Like there's no way to do this that would be like, oh, I think I found it. This is the way. Right, right, right. It's right. always going to be, it's going to be uh, like problematic no matter what you do. And so I was telling them, like, you can play like a Baccarat and be like, and be like, how does that sound like an Arab? And it's like, exactly. What is an Arab? I don't know what is an Arab, you know? And then, awesome. or you might try and like play like something that sounds like Aladdin, in which case, like, that's the commentary. That's your choice. And then you, you, or you, you know, some people went and listened to recordings of, you know, like Simon Shaheen and other like Arab performers. And they were like, and then they played something that really came out of that. And then, and that acquired a whole other meaning. And again, like, was that better than the other? I don't know. Not really. You know, right. um, it was just different. But, yeah. Yeah. But they were so pissed at me. You know, they were really, really not happy with me, especially the pianist <laughs> who he was not, he was not unhappy with me because of the, the fact that like the attributes, but he didn't want to have to improvise. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And so then I, you know, so that was one thing. And I think actually like that piece, it, it, it got picked a lot to play, to get played by lots of people because I think people found it interesting as a, uh-huh. as a challenge, you know, because for me, the reason I wrote it is like, that's how I feel, yeah. you know, people always say like, as an Arab, how do you feel about blah, 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 you know? And it's like, well, what is an Arab? <laughs> like, and also, you know, as an Arab, like, I, I know this because living as a French guy, I know that I have to deal with a lot of stereotypes that French people kind of mostly made up about themselves as a PR thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh, I speak French very well. I love my croissant and, uh, you know, and like all that stuff that, that is, makes it kind of fun to be French guy, you know, especially in the US and people like will laugh at you like, oh yeah, you're so, you're so French. But French people are responsible for those, right? For Arab guy, uh, for Arab people, I mean, when you say uh, as an Arab, like they don't mean as an Arab, like, you know, in exactly like what is it to be an Arab? It's like what what Westerners invented about Arabs, right? And and then now you have to wear that burden on your shoulders and then exist as an Arab based on what they think is an Arab, and then everything you do is like you know in that way. So it's it's very it's very heavy. So I was like, okay, well, welcome in my shoes, you know. Man, that's like, so good. The piece is uncomfortable, but that's how I feel yeah. all the time, you know. <laughs> that's so good. Whether I'm aware of it or not, and then yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. So to then ask I did another piece. Yeah. Yeah. You want, you guys want to hear about another piece? Yeah, totally. So that one I, sure, I sure. You, I'm not sure like, um, we can go Elias, as like as how connected you are with Israeli culture. Um, uh, but, no, uh, I, I would say not so much, but you know, so I've, I've had friends and family and go there and live there and I've, I've been there and yeah, I'm Jewish, yeah. but you know, it's, again, it's complicated. What is, what is an Israeli? What is a Jew? What is a, an American yeah, exactly. Jew in Israel? Yeah. So yeah. But the pieces uh, I wrote was, um, it was, that was actually one of the, my, my favorite projects I ever did. It was um, for, um, so the event was pairing up a chef and a musician mm-hmm. and uh, coming up. And so there were musicians like actually on stage, but I mean, I chose to do an electronic piece okay. and we were supposed to come up with a, with a project, basically a piece that people would listen to while eating the, the food that the chef made. Okay. And, um, and as soon as they told me about this, I immediately thought of like a friend of mine who's who's a pianist actually, but she's an amazing cook and she's Israeli, Edith Mishulam, and uh, she lives here in New York. And so I was like, we should do this together, like we, because we always talked about like our area and politics, and you know we both have very strong opinions about it. And and it was she's like she's a great person to engage with on this stuff. So I was like, let's make a piece that's about our area. So I wrote a piece, and um, so she made the food. And I gave her some of my ingredients, 
including Zatar. And like it's just mm, time. I love that. And, yeah, and a few other things that like I had. Yeah. And then she gave me a bunch of sound files that I had to use in in uh, in my piece, including like this song. I think it's called Ammunition Hill. It's an Israeli um, military kind of song from a certain period, and some you know bulletins from Israeli radio and her a recording of her playing on the accordion, a bunch of things like that. And we made this piece, which is basically like a journey, a narrator's journey across the border, which is oh, wow. uh, an impossible. You can't cross the border, yeah. but like you're going back and forth between it and you're hearing all these sounds that are, you know, like street sounds, food sounds, music, people, children, birds. And, um, and it's like a 25 minute piece that like illustrates a 24 hour circle in the area. And you hear, you know, like violent things and beautiful things and all that, like, and, and the thing is it has all languages in there. It's a French at the end, but some, of course there's a lot of Arabic, Hebrew, Yiddish. There's a Yiddish song at the end. Uh, called Chifrele's Portrait mm. that I used like as a closing sound song, and um, and it's like I mean the thing is like Arabs couldn't understand a lot of what the Hebrew was, right. and a lot of Israelis who don't speak Arabic couldn't un- couldn't understand the Arabic, but then some people could understand all of them, right? Mm. And they were like getting all the references. So then I had like a lot of, wow. for example, Israelis who didn't speak other languages. They were like. I don't understand why you're making us look so bad. Like you're making, you're, you're using footage that is really bad. I'm like, I'm also using footage that's really good, for like in Hebrew. And they're like, yeah, but I mean, why are you making, why are you playing this stuff that some right-wing nationalists are saying? I'm like, only you understand that. Right. Like, you know, like I didn't, I didn't, there's no translation anywhere. There's no, there's no subtitles. It's just, you know, but also right, the it's all symbols are, and, and influence, you know, the influence yeah. of it. Right. So it was like a very How uh, cool, interesting experience is that and and uh you know not to put you on the spot but is there is that is there like a video or some sort of recording of that 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 we can yeah, share yeah. you can hear the piece on soundcloud you can go and listen to okay that. of course you can't eat, eat this food yeah <laughs> which is a shame yeah. i'm sure unfortunately because it's so good yeah. it's it's amazing like you're you're really pushing a lot of boundaries and you know I, I feel the last few years at least from what you've said and the projects you've done you've really come full circle and, and to not, not just a career path, but also a, a self-defining like who you are and, and what your role is in, in life in a way. And um, as Mike was saying before that, that music is one of those forms and, and art in general to, uh, to bring cultures closer and to ask the hard questions, you know, you're getting bombarded from both sides from the Arabic world who might, might not like some of the things they're doing um, and and might like a lot of the things and the Jewish world and the Christian world who also are having uh, you know adverse reactions. So it, it's great great to bring all that together and to question things and at least uh, see them for what they are and and yeah. make well, make these questions. Like, that, yeah, it's not always comfortable, but it's that important. tension I think is an important place to to be. Like if you if if you don't feel that that and I don't mean necessarily racial or political tension. I mean that tension is kind of life. I mean that you got to have yeah. in language and in, in in relationships. Um, even the really like we talked about before the relationship between the composer and the and the and the performer and the performer and the um, and the audience and the audience, and yeah. I mean that communication is itself a. a uh, is about kind of tension and release and, and how do we navigate that, that those, those conversations and, and anything that we do that's important. Like if it's, if it's not important, then there is no tension. If it's, if it's just fluff, <laughs> yeah. 
you gotta you gotta have that tension otherwise it's it's not even worth doing yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and like in the peace side, I could get in trouble for it. <laughs> like sometimes every now and then, like I listen to it. I never really like advertised in Lebanon. But for example, like there's that moment where I use that Ammunition Hill song, which is an Israeli military song. Yeah. Yeah. And then underneath it is this Hezbollah song, right? Wow. Which is like, and I mean, like some people could like shoot me for this, you know? There's also like a place where I, uh, I had uh, this, I mean, that was like more, uh, you could say cliche, but it was a total accident. The piece runs on a 24-hour circle. It starts at sunrise and it ends at sunrise. And one way that I'm tracing time is with the calls to prayer, you know, mm. that when they happen. Right. And then the other one is the the church bells. Because I don't know, in Lebanon, it, you, whenever you walk, there's always the, the bells are ringing the, the hour. Yeah. You know, what time? Not every hour, but like most hours. And so I have those bells ringing. And then the call for prayer. So when I made my file, I just plugged those in. I was like, okay, here's going to be this call for prayer. Here's going to be. And I figured like I'll deal with them once I get there, like how to integrate them. What do they sound like? And then there was that one moment. It was like around 6 p.m. in the day, like the the story. And I was like, I really want to use this song by Fairuz, who's a Lebanese singer. And she's singing an Easter an Eastern song. Easter song. Easter like for song. The, oh. Like now, you know. Like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I was playing with it. I put it in there. And it just happened to line up above the call for prayer guy. Wow. And, and and I mean, when I say lined up, I don't mean like they just went well, like time-wise, but the harmony was she was like in the relative major and he was in the relative minor of the same key. <sighs> and so- this like, it just happened. Like when he was singing, it just like reharmonized it. And then it would just come in and out. And it was just like, man, it just like brought tears to my eyes when I was just like working through this song. And then you just land in these moments where you're just like, wow, yeah. this is so beautiful. Like I couldn't have, I couldn't have predicted that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. The, the, the big question is like, do people, do we live in an age where people are, are able to slow down and notice things like that? Um, that's another question. That's a great you know, question. Time. I think, <laughs> I think Elias and, and uh, Michal, I think we need to do a part two because I think that is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, we, we, could, we need we to could do something else. I think we need, to, we need to talk are. some more. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and and we are kind of get getting to the end of the time, and so I I and I really want to um, Mikhail, tell me how if somebody's interested in your work, is interested in maybe projects that you may or may not be working on now in the future. Like, what's the best way that people can get get a hold of you or 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 see what's going on with you? So I um I have a website that I <laughs> forget to update. For time for a long stretches of time but i mean that's a, a good place where you can find a lot of the things we talked about today okay um and yeah i've recently learned about this thing called instagram <laughs> and, and, I've been, and you can see like a bunch of things i do like i have a, a podcast that's not as official as your guy what you guys do but i mean you you know you can hear me interview people this is the first time i actually talk myself about myself and it feels kind of very strange but <laughs> usually awesome. i interview other people well you have yeah, a and, really unique and cool story so i appreciate you sharing that with us seriously thank you what's your what's your website so those that are listening can so yeah it's my first name m-i-c-h-a-l and then my last name masood m-a-s-s-o-u-d so michalmasood.com Michal Masood. Right, that's easy enough. We'll put that in the notes too. Yeah, we'll put that in the notes. We'll also, we'll, I'll, I'm going to try and, and integrate maybe a little bit of your music in, into the podcast so people can get a flavor of your work. Um, 
this has been so much fun. I really appreciate your time and 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 your insight. It's been a lot of fun for for me and uh, and so thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you for doing this. This is such a great. Yeah. I mean, I've been listening to a bunch of your episodes, and you have a lot of really cool conversations in there. So thank you. Well, this thank will be another great listening. one. It's uh, great to reconnect and hear some really important topics. You just put them in such a way; it's very easy to to just. Yeah, it's a very comfortable spot and place to uh, tackle some really hard things. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Well, we'll definitely we'll do a part two. This is Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. 